0: Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are completing the recap portion of our mini-series on Stephen King's novella, The Gunslinger, found in the novel, The Gunslinger. Before we jump in, I just want to take a moment
0: to thank everyone who shared our podcast on social media as part of our social media sharing contest. Uh, That was a huge help for us. We reached a lot of people we would never have reached without you. And uh, the download numbers show that we've gotten a lot of new listeners. So uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, thank you for everyone for participating. I'm going to be drawing the winners
1: soon. So you should hear from me, uh, certainly before Thanksgiving. As we said before, it's a massive help to us. So even if you're listening to this at some point in the future where the social media contest is still not going <laughs> on, hey, if you like what we're doing, tell people about us. Get them to listen to our shows. It helps us out so much. We love doing these, and we want as many people to listen to us as, uh, as the servers will handle. But, Glenn, let's just get to the episode, the recap
0: All right. Well, chapter nine picks up still within the story that the gunslinger is telling Brown in his hovel on the edge of the desert. But- it's the, the next day. It's the the day after Allie has told her story about Nort and the Man in Black. The gunslinger has decided to stick around this town for a little while, even though he knows that he shouldn't. We talked about that last time, right? He knows that he needs to be pursuing the Man in Black, but still, he's going to stay. And King doesn't really give us any motive for that, but there's a, a real sense of weariness here, I, I think. And while he's here, though, the, the gunslinger can at least try to learn more about the desert and especially about what's on the other side of the desert. Allie doesn't know because no one has crossed the desert since she's been here. What she says is actually since I was here. And I, I love the surrealism of that, right? How did she get here? Where was she before? Uh it's
1: not clear that Allie knows and I don't think we're ever gonna find out. Yeah, this lack of motivation that the gunslinger has, I kind of teased it in the last episode that the the gunslinger is here, that the man in black must know something about the gunslinger, that he's gonna stay in tall for longer than he should but it's really on the reader to discover why that is and that's going to take up maybe a a good chunk of our discussion episode because it's not spelled out in the text i don't have a good answer as to why the gunslinger has decided to not just leave tall it's almost though it's almost as though yes he's weary as you pointed out but he's also interested in discovering, he's curious about the trap that the man in black has left for him. And it would almost be a violation of the game they're playing with each other for him to leave before the trap is sprung. It's very strange. It's a very strange psychology that King has imbued the gunslinger with. Uh, but I think the best way to describe it is as you know the kind of keyword we've been using for the, these episodes, it's surreal. It's just surreal. I think we might even
0: call into question whether or not the gunslinger even wants to catch the man in black. We have no sense of what the gunslinger's identity is or, or purpose is or hobbies are, you know, when he's not chasing, when he's not pursuing the man in black. Uh, I'm looking forward to taking that up in the discussion. Cause I do think that that's a, a really interesting question, especially to try to tackle it in just total isolation here of just this novella that represents the first chapter of the first book of this sprawling seven book, uh, you know, close to probably a million words of, uh, of text that King has in this story. Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun to do. Well, let's get into chapter 10, which is a little bit longer. This has us at the uh, hostlery because maybe the hostler knows something about the other side of the desert because he's the one who takes care of the coach horses. He doesn't know anything, but he offers some speculations that he's heard, which include mountains, a green ocean full of monsters, and the end of the world with lights that will drive a man blind in the face of God with his mouth open to eat them up. Uh, Those are all great (laughs) options, I guess. And uh, the the hostler, his name is Kennerly, by the way. So Kennerly also believes that they are living in the last times right now, because the book describes that as a period when children won't obey their parents and there will be a plague. And so I guess that both of those things are going on here in the world of the story. And he also believes that there are demons in the desert but he definitely doesn't believe that Nort was dead and resurrected. He, he believes that he was merely sick and healed and that anyone who says otherwise is uh, is foolish. Uh, so there are some interesting ideas about God and also just about the numinous in general here. Uh, there is also some business with his sensuous daughter staring at the the gunslinger.
1: You brought this up uh, in the, the last episode a little bit, Brandon. Yeah, Kennerly is a real rough character here. He's awful. I mean, we talked about the mention of the inbred clan in the description of Tall as the gunslingers walking through town. This is Kennerly's family. I mean, there's definitely some sense of incest here that Kennerly is involved with his daughters, which really loads the idea that children won't obey their parents with the most despicable connotation that Kennerly is thinking here. And he has an apocalyptic mindset, Kennerly does, that's rooted in some form of Christianity, but he's also a morally disastrous, despicable person. Um, And it's it's just crazy. I mean, it's crazy. It's another level of the surreal here. And we'll see as we kind of get into the religious aspect of the story, there's, there's a church service that's going to come up. Just what is going on with this? You know, talk of Jesus and God and revelation and the apocalypse uh, at that—that that is really front and center on a lot of people's minds in this story. And it's strange the the surre—the surrealism is even heightened by the fact that it's indicated that demons are a realistic belief it's not silly to believe in demons they're obviously real that's something adults believe in but resurrection is a is a childish belief so their sense of like faith and uh i don't know the core concept of Christianity which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all very backwards but demons are very real uh, and and I, I don't know spoiler alert here for those who care I, I'm fairly certain it's the ocean after the desert and not the mountains uh, so that is where the next book in the Dark Tower series primarily takes place is uh, is on the ocean uh, on a beach with monsters. You know, and I did not remember that. It has been way too long since I have, have read these books. So
0: as I was reading this, I was wondering which one of them it was going to turn out to be. But I also was wondering whether King knew or if thinking metafictionally about the genesis of The Dark Tower as a series out of this one novella, out of this one novel, uh, if if King just kind of went back to this conversation and uh, and picked one, took this as his own writing prompt for that next setting.
1: Well, I think by the end of this novel, uh, which you know would be the fifth novella he's he's written about the adventures of of Roland the Gunslinger, he's decided on the ocean. But it, again, this is another example of how this novella, this first one, feels so much like discovery writing. Like he's working out all the ideas that he's going to lay down for the scheme, the schema of the whole series. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that in the discussion. I mean, I don't think that's a
0: bad way to write. I mean, it's it's what Tolkien did as well. But we will take that up next episode. Uh, now there's a, a significant time jump between chapters 10 and 11. It's been four days. The gunslinger is in Allie's room. They've been eating, sleeping, and... Uh, they've been making sex. That is, that's what King writes. I think we all wish that he hadn't. I think King probably wishes that he hadn't written that. Uh, they're just about to have sex when Sheb, the piano player, Sheb kicks the door in and charges the gunslinger with uh, a carving knife. The gunslinger dispatches with this easily. He he breaks Sheb's hand or, or his wrist in the process. And the deal here is that Sheb and Allie used to be a thing and Sheb is jealous. Uh, also, though King does not spell this out, you know, this place is called Sheb. So uh, so my understanding of this is that Sheb's sometimes girlfriend has her own room in his home and now is having sex with some stranger who just got into town. Uh, and I thought that hurting Sheb here would, would turn Allie off of the gunslinger, that she'd see him as a brute, as someone who uses too much force and has too little mercy. Uh, but it doesn't. And in fact, he's the one who doesn't want to have sex when the incident is over.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of confused about this character Valley. Not really, but the upstairs of the saloon, kind of the people who live there. That's that's her classic brothel setting in the western as well. And so I wonder if she's maybe a, a prostitute or something like that. Uh, but there's that reversal where she's where she's charging the gunslinger sex for information, but Sheb is only now revealing that he's kind of obsessed with her or in love with her and and this is maybe another indication that the man in black is a kind of catalyst of fear and desire he's he's his presence has riled these people up and prepared them that so that when the gunslinger comes they are primed to act out in some way act out of this stuff that they've been ruminating on for weeks or a month. But I also think, you know, Shep, if he owns the bar, or if he, whether he owns the bar or not, or whether he's the piano player and the main attraction of the bar, uh, breaking the risks of a piano player is, uh, boy, that's a rough punishment. <laughs> I wonder if the gunslinger could handle that better. And it's another sense that we get that the gunslinger is maybe not the, the kind of white hat that we want him to be. This is the first bit of violence that we see the gunslinger
0: perform, though it's you know going to be a small percentage of it by the time we're just ten pages from where we are now. And so this is also setting up that idea, right? Because the the ease with which the gunslinger takes care of Shep here, said take care of you know breaks his wrist, disarms him, uh, makes him not a threat anymore, is is meant to show us how awesome the the gunslinger. Is and we're definitely going to see that. Uh, if you think you know the ability to uh, massacre an entire town is uh, is awesome, I guess.
1: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't for me, but uh, it certainly, <laughs> it certainly is a troubling character trait for the gunslinger and really complicates. The story for me in a lot of ways. Well, we've got some work to do before we get there. So let's jump into chapter 12, which is a, a pretty long chapter. It's one of
0: only two long chapters that we get in this second half of the story. And so it is, uh, it's time for church. This is going to be that religious service you talked about, Brandon. It is what passes for the Sabbath in this town. Uh, the bar is closed. A lot of the town goes to church, though the alley is not one of them. The, the church is on the outskirts of town. It's not an impressive structure. The, the woman who runs the church is named Sylvia Pittston and Ali thinks that she is not good. Uh, crazy is the word that she uses, and Sylvia lives alone and, and only comes out on Sundays to serve up hellfire. Uh, she's got the hoodoo on them, is what Ali says. And uh, when the gunslinger gets there, the, the congregation is very badly singing a hymn. He sees among them Kennerly and his entire brood, his, his incestuous family. Uh, also, Sheb is there. The preacher, uh, Sylvia Pittston, uh, she's an obese woman. Uh, she's wearing a burlap dress. She's got to Sheveled Hair. Uh, King describes all of this with that disgust that you've been talking about as well, Brandon. Uh, But nonetheless, the the gunslinger feels a red lust for her and he has to look away. Uh, And the hymn that they're singing is a 19th century American gospel piece called Shall We Gather at the River? And when the hymn is over, it is time for a sermon. The topic of the sermon is the interloper, which is uh, what she is calling Satan or the devil or the the adversary. And she runs through an interesting list of places where the interloper appears in the Bible. Uh, Brandon, I'm going to let you speak more about that if you're so inclined. Uh, But then she gets into her own voice, a, a, a weird fiction voice. And here's what she says. He's always been there, my brothers and sisters, but I don't know his mind. And you don't know his mind. Who could understand the awful darkness that swirls there? The pride like pylons, the titanic blasphemy, the unholy glee, and the madness, the cyclopean gibbering madness that walks and crawls and wriggles through men's most awful wants and desires. And she goes on. It's him that will come as the Antichrist to lead men into the flaming bowels of perdition, to the bloody end of wickedness, as star wormwood hangs ablazing in the sky, as gall gnaws at the vitals of the children, as women's wombs give forth monstrosities, as the works of men's hands turn to blood. And uh, she gets a-, a little call and response thing going here, and the audience is really getting worked into a frenzy. And while this is going on, two other things are happening. One, it's clear that she's setting up the gunslinger as the interloper. She's gestured at him a few times. She's invoked the idea that her audience may even see the interloper walking down Main Street of their own town. And the other thing is that the the gunslinger realizes that there is a demon in Sylvia Pittston left there by the man in black. This is the trap that has been left for him.
1: Right, the idea that demons are real is is reinforced here. So this is not something that we are meant to take as part of uh, the childish beliefs of the world. In this world, in this story, demons are very real, and uh, and that follows throughout the whole series, as I as I recall of the of the Dark Tower. I, I'm always interested in how authors make use of the genre of the sermon in whatever literary work they're writing. It's a vastly underused genre in novels. And I, and I think that there are really few contemporary novels that make use of it. So I always like it when I, the sermon shows up in, in a work of literature or or whatever. But its use here is to demonstrate a kind of Christianity that is obsessed with Uh, the end times, how everything is a sign of the end times. And it's not really focused on loving your neighbor or or Christ's redemption of the sinner or the call to moral perfection or godliness that can be found in Christ's teachings. Instead, it it focuses on people's need or the need of the community to collectivize and, and commune around an enemy that can take the form of anything or any person. And how people can't even trust themselves because the power of that enemy is also within them, and and the way that King writes this scene also points out you know the 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 sexual allure, or maybe just the allure in general to this kind of preaching, and and all in all, I think King is writing you know here a perversion of of a church service, that's sort of an evangelical version of a black mass maybe, (laughs) Um, but I think it's really effective. I think it speaks to you know the slick suits the the comb back hair the clean shaven face that kind of, or maybe semi ruggedness that you see in a lot of uh televangelists were which were becoming a big deal in the late 1970s maybe in the 70s and carried on throughout the 80s that kind of played both on the sexual image maybe sexuals too strong a word but the alluring image that you could present on television, the representation of an attractive person as preacher that was also focused maybe too much on uh, fear of the other, fear of the self, and the end times. Uh, and so I think Wolf is really using the genre of sermon here in in a really fascinating way. Uh, and, I, and I love the way he uses it. And, and you're right. Yes, the, the interloper here, Satan shows up. In this text, as the snake in the Garden of Eden, uh, the one who really speaks to Aaron, though Aaron isn't mentioned here, and Aaron is Moses's uh, brother-in-law who creates the golden idol, the golden calf, and has has people worship it while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, uh, and we also have references to the books, the Book of Kings here. Uh, with Jezebel, who is a major figure in end times imagery, particularly in Revelation, but her story is found in in the Book of Kings, in the Old Testament, as is the story of Ahaz. So, you know the iconic placement of the interloper, apart from the Garden of Eden, which is maybe a, a retcon of some, in some ways of the Old <laughs> Testament from the New Testament. The real place where you see the, the Satan show up in the New Testament is the um, is Jesus's fast in the desert uh, and the the three temptations of Christ so that doesn't even show up here so Christ isn't even really a part of this Christianity it's all focused on the end times we also have the image of wormwood which is you know, a meteor or something that's going to strike earth uh, as well as a plague. So, uh, fascinating, fascinating use of the sermon here. I really love it. And I'm always thinking in my writing, you know, how can I sneak a sermon as a genre into <laughs> something I'm writing? Haven't cracked it yet. Haven't had a story that I've written yet that that makes use of it. I'm just glad it shows up here.
0: Right, I, I love sermons too. I mean, sermons are what I work on as a historian. Right, that's the most of my research has been about fifth and sixth century sermons delivered uh, during the uh, the fall of the Roman Empire and, and and about the fall of the the Roman Empire. Uh, so I also love when sermons show up in stories. I've I've written a few sermons in my stories actually that have that have managed to get in or at least given some really long monologues to preacher characters that uh, I have modeled on some sermons that, that maybe are not technically sermons themselves in in the <laughs> stories. But yeah, I really loved this chapter. This This was probably my favorite uh, single chapter here of the the novella. I love this character of Sylvia Pittston. I love the imagery, the weird fiction imagery of this sermon. I mean, this is a sermon by a a weird fiction uh, cult leader, right? And this is the sort of thing that we get in a lot of Lovecraft stories, uh, including uh, the the horror at Red Hook, actually, which I think is kind of what King was thinking of when he said, I'm going to call this the horror at all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Though he Maybe wisely changed the name of the story to The Gunslinger, but still referenced uh, that, that story in order to uh, build out the world of The Gunslinger. Well, let's do uh, chapters 13 and 14
0: together since they're they're both short, and, and really they're just giving us some tension before the climax. They're kind of the, the calm before the storm here. So the, the gunslinger wants to go visit the preacher, Sylvia Pittston, when she's alone. Allie says that there's no way that she'll see him. She doesn't see anyone. and She only comes out on Sundays. Uh, through some interrogation, though, we learn that she has been in this town for about 12 years, uh, that she came from the direction of the desert, and that there used to be a real minister in Tall, but that he abandoned. In the town shortly before Sylvia arrived. And we also get a, a breakfast scene. It's going to be the the last scene of Ali and the the gunslinger together because uh, he's he's going to talk to Sylvia now. Uh, and there's a great ominous description of the sky here when King writes, The sky was an ugly, bruised purple, weirdly lit from above with the first fingers of dawn. And this is essentially King's riff on Homer's rosy-fingered dawn, and I absolutely love it. And I think that this is a perfectly placed bit of, uh, of, of using the sky, using a description of the sky to set the mood for what is to come.
1: Yeah, uh here's a pro tip for uh maybe amateur writers. Uh, don't use rosy-fingered dawn in a story. I don't think it really works anymore. <laughs> I am always tempted to try to find a way to make it work. It never does. But you're right. This is a reference to that uh Homeric phrase and it works here. So I uh, you know, applause to King for for finding a riff on that 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 works. Uh, I I have just really big questions after chapters thirteen and fourteen in the story, especially after rereading this a couple times to prep for the podcast. Why won't the gunslinger just leave? And and what good is a map really going to do if he's just following somebody? You know, if if getting a map is now his main motivation and staying in Tall, couldn't the gunslinger have found a way to do this much sooner, like a week ago. Again, you know, the gunslinger's motivations are going to be under some real scrutiny in our discussion.
0: Yeah, it feels to me like some of that's kind of a justification for what's what's really driving his his motivation here. Well, let's, uh, let's do chapter 15. Let's go visit Sylvia Pittston. Uh, this is not actually the climax of the story. That's going to be chapter 17, but this is nonetheless a very tense scene. When the gunslinger gets to Sylvia's shack, she she won't answer, so he just kicks the door in, and she's sitting there on a massive rocking chair made of dark wood, and and what he wants is to know about the desert, about what comes after it, and what the Man in Black's plans are— he does eventually find out that it's mountains, and that once the Man in Black crosses them, he's going to meditate in order to get his strength up. Uh, though, for what? We have no idea. But before the gunslinger learns this, there's some conflict, some, some violent conflict, some disturbingly violent conflict. Uh, Sylvia accuses him of being evil. Uh, She talks about the man in black as if he's an angel. She says that she had sex with him and now is pregnant with his child. This is going to be the child of an angel. And at one point, she refers to herself as the bride of God, But the gunslinger knows that she's possessed by a demon, and there's some unsettling sexual violence that, uh, I guess, exercises the the demon. King is actually not explicit about the metaphysics uh, of this, even even as he's being more explicit about the physicality of this than I particularly cared for. Uh, But in the end, Sylvia says that the, the child is dead now. And to this, the gunslinger simply says, no child, no demon, no angel. And he leaves Sylvia there to deal with the, the violence that he's just done to her.
1: Yeah, I don't like this chapter at all. And it's not that I think it's aged poorly or, or anything like that. I I just don't think it works in the story. I, I get that we're contrasting the brutal actions of the gunslinger and are supposed to see them as defensible in some way with the to counteract the perverse miracles of the man in black. Uh, but I feel like the gunslinger just sort of puts all this on himself. I... Personally, don't really care what happens to the town of Toll once the gunslinger leaves and continues his pursuit. Uh, and maybe that's a problem of the framing of the story, but the story is really set up to be about the gunslinger's pursuit. But instead, we get this kind of a side quest that doesn't really need to happen. Nor does the gunslinger really accomplishing anything uh, in this in the side quest, other than causing some extreme pain and mayhem, and what 's worse is that he goes to do this thing and doesn't even accomplish getting what he needs from Pittston, which is the size of the desert uh, and it is mountains i just I just looked it up again. There are mountains before the ocean, and the gunslinger does go through the mountains, but the ocean is ultimately kind of what 's at the at the end of this whole time spent in. This dangerous nature scenario first desert then mountains. So I just I just mean you know like what (laughs) you know what's happening here. Uh, This this chapter really disturbs me uh, to to a great degree that in the context of this story um, just doesn't work. And I think King does after the story work to correct some of the. Image problems that he's created for his hero in this chap in this chapter in this first novella,
0: yeah, because there's definitely a way that he could have told this part of the story. He could have done this chapter where the gunslinger is here explicitly to destroy this demon, to exercise this demon, because he's trying to protect the townspeople of Tall. right? He doesn't want to leave them in the grip of this this demon. They're clearly in the grip, or at least many of them are clearly in the, the grip of her. We're going to find out more about that uh, very shortly. Uh, but that's not the way that King frames any of this, right? He d- isn't really presenting the gunslinger as the, the chivalric hero, the, the guy who wanders from town to town and uh, takes care of whatever kind of, you know, monster or other type of bad guy might be plaguing them. That's He's, he's showing us some of those actions, but isn't giving us those types of motivations at all, which is interesting. And I'm looking forward to digging into that more in the, the next episode.
1: Yeah, it's just it's really a problem for me. Uh, th- this chapter in particular is almost too dark for the way that this story is framed the solution you offered there is to to kind of cast the gunslinger, maybe more as the chivalric hero on some level, the classic one. I still think that King could have kept this anti-hero type of character without him needing to cause total destruction or mayhem because it makes the whole point of this side quest utterly meaningless. and And I'm left then by the time we get to the end of this novella as with the question of what is this even about what is this for <laughs> you know um but i still love this novella so i'm i'm not going to go super hard on it but i think it's clearly as we've been saying and and kind of the most generous thing we can say about it by the time we get to the end is it's a bit of exploratory writing that's setting up a, a major universe well, we are very close to the end. So let's let's push on. Uh, chapter 16 is
0: another short chapter. The gunslinger goes to the hostelry to get his mule. Kennerly tries to talk him out of leaving town before the storm. And when the gunslinger insists, Kennerly pauses. He hesitates. He's searching for some other excuse. And when the gunslinger whirls around, Kennerly's daughter is swinging a heavy stick at him. Uh, he dodges it. He gets command of the situation. And then he gets his mule and he leaves. But this is just the beginning, right? This is the indicator that the townspeople are against him, which we're going to need to know as we head to the real action climax of the story, which is going to take place in chapter 17. And let's let's just go straight to it. Let's not delay getting to the climax any longer. <laughs> the, the gunslinger is ready to leave town, but before he does, he leaves four gold coins on the bar for Alley, And then, as he is heading out of town, he's walking past all the buildings that have been shuttered up against the approaching storm, he can feel the eyes of the townsfolk on him. There's a scream. And then all at once, the doors burst open, and the townsfolk are coming at him, armed with sticks and boards, and some of them with nails in them. But he's a gunslinger. And even though he does take some minor wounds, he is unstoppable. And in the end, he kills 39 men, 14 women, and five children. Uh, He shoots and kills every single person in Tall. Uh, now, this is actually quite a long chapter. I've clearly skipped over the, the details. and uh, uh, I don't want to give a blow by blow, but we should definitely point out some of the features of this shootout and the way that King narrates it. Uh, first, this feels very much like a zombie movie. The The townsfolk aren't really themselves, or at least that's my reading of it, that they're they're possessed or, or influenced by something, something that the, the man in black did. And the drama of the chapter comes in the moments when the, the gunslinger has to reload, right? So all of that feels like a, a zombie movie to me. Uh, the second thing... Thing to say is that King really focuses on bodies during this narration. Uh, some of it's gory, right? The killing parts. Uh, but he also gives us visceral descriptions of what the, the gunslinger is smelling and hearing, uh, and even the calluses on his hands and the, the marks that the bullets make on his fingers as he reloads his guns. Just a real emphasis on bodies here. Uh, and then there are some character moments as well. Allie is a part of the first wave, but but unwillingly so. Sheb is using her as a human shield. Uh, Kennerly and his daughters are there, and the the preacher Sylvia also. Uh, She is shouting in all caps about how the gunslinger is a devil and a monster and a child killer. And the the last thing that I'll I'll say about the narration before we uh, get to the last paragraph of the chapter is that King does not paint the gunslinger as a reluctant or hesitant killer, right? He's not someone who's just trying to get the townsfolk to leave him alone. He kills people. He kills lots of people, in fact, as they are running away. Uh, And he also kills Allie. He doesn't really seem to try not to do that, even though he's been in a sexual relationship with her for like a, a week now. Uh, and I think that this can bring us into the the last paragraph, which is also the last paragraph of this story within the story. We'll be back with Brown in the next chapter. Uh, and the link here is that while King narrates the rest of the gunslinger's day for us, uh, we don't get any internal emotion from him. We don't get him musing about what a tragedy this was or, or anything like that. It, it's just business. And what the gunslinger does is calmly walk his mule back to the hostel, get it settled in, then go back to Sheb's and make some hamburgers for himself and drink some beer, and then go up to Allie's room and sleep through the the night, and and only leaving town the the next day. Uh, There are some other features here as well. First of them is is Nort. Uh, Nort is dead. He's hanging from the roof of Sheb's, and when the gunslinger cuts him down, uh, he weighs less than a bag of sticks. And then in the morning, when the, the gunslinger emerges from Shab's, the, the bodies of the townsfolk seem to be gone. Uh, and I'll confess that I wasn't quite sure what had happened here. And I, I think I'll just read the line. And then, Brandon, you can tell me how you understood this. Uh, here's what King writes. The next morning, the wind was gone and the sun was its usual bright and forgetful self. The bodies had gone south like
1: tumbleweeds with the wind. So, so what did you think was going on there? Just in the chapter before, where the gunslinger is talking to Kennerly, uh, Kennerly notes that the gunslinger is leaving, but he probably shouldn't leave before this storm, and that's because Kennerly says the storm. In the storm, the wind goes faster than a man on a mule in the open. It can kill you. So there's some kind of like super powerful wind, I guess that can. Blow a man around, blow a person around, and and by saying a man, they're saying like somebody who weighs you know 180 pounds, I expect, or something like that. So the 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 power of the wind must be extraordinary, and uh, that's what I think King is is referencing here. That the the wind blew the bodies like tumbleweeds. It really was that powerful, and there was no way that the gunslinger, had he left when he was trying to, would have survived, uh, being out in the open and that in some way, this was the best case scenario, but I'm not quite sure about that. If he had left maybe a week earlier, he would have been caught in this having traveled for many weeks out in the open. So I think King is maybe trying to, to justify in some sense, uh, through plotting through the world building, how, if the gunslinger had left. He could have been killed by this wind to justify all this violence, but but that's my sense of it. I don't think it works very well, but it's just what I think is happening.
0: Yeah. I, I didn't really quite have this sense uh, that this was just part of the sort of physical nature of the storm, because I'm thinking about a storm that could move uh 30 plus bodies, human bodies, such that they're just gone right that they're uh, they've been blown like tumbleweeds with the wind it seems to me that that that's a pretty serious hurricane right <laughs> that can do that and that this town that's m- with full of buildings that are just made of wood maybe shouldn't have survived that so to me I thought that there was something numinous going on uh, you know if indeed this is even literally true I mean I guess I kind of wondered how you know how literally true this this was it was something that puzzled me. This was probably the the line, probably the, the the bit of the story that left me the most puzzled here. In in a story that is full of
1: you know surrealist bits that are meant to leave us puzzled. Right. I I don't think there's a good explanation for it other than it's the wind. And <laughs> this is the wind has this feature. I guess I don't know. Yeah. I mean I have a few comments about this chapter here. Obviously everybody is trying to kill the gunslinger at this point, and it does start in chapter 16 with Kennerly's daughter trying to kill the gunslinger and i guess it's for his loot maybe for his uh gold for his guns for his mule whatever it is uh and and then we move into chapter 17 which really just demonstrates the gunslinger's efficiency and power with his weapons and when i first read this series after reading this when i was when i was a teenager you know 17 16 um, when I got to the second book, I was really upset by the fact that the gunslinger immediately becomes crippled. Uh, not the second novella in this collection, but but book two, The Drawing of Three. Uh, and, and, and he becomes handicapped in a way that he can't use his guns like this really ever again. And this happens almost right in the opening of, of the book. But in, in rereading this short story again, I'm glad that King changed Directions with this gunslinger character, uh, because I think that this character needed a serious humbling, and he needs to form bonds with other human beings in order to soften how brutal he is in this story, and to wreck on it to to give us the reader a sense that this conflict that the gunslinger has uh, has a sort of karmic response to it in the way that the story, the way that the horror at Tall is viewed as a conflict of man versus man, um, though it's maybe more man versus himself, his own nature, the way that the story is framed as man versus nature. When we get to the second book, nature kind of repays the gunslinger and almost kills him. And I think that that is the right move to make, though as a 17-year-old who just wants my heroes to be awesome and to just <laughs> no matter what they do is right, it, it was a troubling, troubling development for me that I'm now really grateful that that King made as he kind of grew up as a, as a person himself.
0: Right. I mean, this is the hero that a teenager writes, and, and King was a teenager, at least not too far away from it when he started conceiving of this story. And yeah, when we're young like that, all of our protagonists are overpowered. There's a bit of Mary Soonness, I think, always going on when you're at that stage of your, your writing. And I, I don't know that there's a lot of King's persona here, uh, but I'm sure that King has daydreamed about what it would be like to be John Wayne in a Western. I mean, we've all done that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But this version of John Ray- Wayne is the one who comes to town. you Uses up all the resources, attacks the local clergy, and then kills everyone. So that's that's kind of a rougher trade <laughs> than Clint Eastwood or, or John Wayne ever ever got into. And obviously, it highlights what just what King is doing with Western tropes as well.
0: Right, I shouldn't have invoked John Wayne. I think it's pretty clear that King was watching uh, the the Wild Bunch on on repeat, and uh, it was probably a movie that was played every night on like the local access station between midnight and two. And you know, he was up because it was college, and he, so he watched it. Um, I don't know. I'm just making up uh, fictional stories about the <laughs> genesis of this novella. Now, well, there are uh, only three chapters left. This is the, the the end of the the framing device, and uh, they're each less than a page. So let's just take the end altogether together here. When the gunslinger finishes telling this story to to Brown, the, the story of the massacre at Tall, Brown doesn't say anything at first, but then he just asks him if he feels better for having told the story. And the gunslinger doesn't know why he would feel bad. And this conversation just fizzles out with the gunslinger saying that he isn't yet desperate to find the man in black. And the next morning, it is time for the gunslinger to leave. He and Brown exchange some good wishes, and and Brown says that he's going to eat the dead mule. And then the gunslinger walks into the desert after the man in black, while Zoltan, the the, the raven, (laughs) perches on the roof of the shelter like a gargoyle. It's a great image there. And finally, we get a coda to all of this, a transition into the next story in the novel. As the gunslinger camps for the night, he thinks about Cort, a man who had been his mentor, the, the man who taught him how to shoot, and who knew black from white. But now he doesn't know where court is. The world has moved on. And now it's time that the gunslinger move on with it. And that's the end of this story.
1: Yeah, we finally crawled our way out of the frames and the nests of the story here. And we're at the end. I, I think the gunslinger carries some sort of moral burden, maybe. And he views Brown as a kind of confessor though I think the gunslinger carries a sense of judgment on himself or with himself as well. So maybe while he wants to confess, he wants to tell his story. Maybe testify is a better word than confess. I'm not sure. He doesn't want to be judged. And so Brown is really the perfect person to hear uh, the gunslinger's tale because he can get it off his shoulders, tell somebody that it happened. Nobody in toll can tell this story. Or know what happened, uh, and there's a sense of maybe a responsibility to having the tale told, uh, but he gets to do it without being judged. And then, right at the end of the story, we get this tease of this character called Court, which I don't think gets unpacked until book four of the series. And books four and five were my were my favorite, at least when I made my way through the series uh, several years ago. But off air, Glenn, you, you asked me. If this was really how the original novella ends in the magazine of fantasy and and science fiction, and it is, though, we get a little parenthetical that follows what we get in this edition, and it says this, thus ends what is written of the first book of Roland and his quest for the tower, which stands at the root of time. And so this is clearly the story that King has in mind, the story that he's building, uh, dark. Roland questing for the Dark Tower, not necessarily the Man in Black. Uh, and the Dark Tower is stands at some sort of nexus of, of time, of possible worlds. And this is really the idea that King ends up running with throughout the series.
0: Yeah, that's a great note. There are two things going on there. One, what we know is that what we've been reading is an actual artifact of the speculative world, right? That there's this thing called the Book of Roland and we've just been reading an excerpt from it, uh, which is always a thing that I love. We, we talk about this a lot on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast for sure. Uh, but also I think this is a really neat artifact of the story's publication in a magazine, right? That this is the sort of trick you do uh, when you want to make readers want you to sell more stories to this magazine or, or, or they want the magazine to buy more stories from you. Not that King really needed that. That type of help, but this is the sort of thing that someone like Robert E. Howard, or a very savvy uh, publisher, pulp, and a very savvy writer in the the pulp era, uh, might have might have done to get readers to write in and say, "We want to know what happens next." Obviously, this is part of his series. Where's where the next one? Where, where, where's the next installment? Uh, and I, I love that King is is doing that. And since he doesn't really need to be doing that at this stage in his career, uh, I think it's really just a neat nod to that pulp era of magazine publishing. But that's starting to think about this story from a meta perspective, which I think we're going to want to do in the next episode, our discussion
1: episode. So that's going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to stop by our website, check out our forum, let us know what you thought of this story, or talk to us over at our new subreddit, Clay Temple Media. I just want to say thanks
0: again to everyone who shared us on social media, everyone who participated in our social media contest. That was a huge help. Thank you so much for doing that. Next time, we'll be back with our final episode on The Gunslinger, our discussion episode. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.